That's one small step for brands. One giant leap for brand kind. You're listening to Food Chain, presented by Perfy. A big thank you to this episode's sponsor, Triple Whale. Triple Whale's powerful analytics platform clarifies your ad performance across channels, keeping you instantly in the know. Hit the link in the show notes and use promo code PERFY for 15% off today. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Food Chained presented by PERFY. Today, we have special guest Chris Moe, CEO of Cartograph with us. Welcome to the show, Chris. What's up, Vasa? Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. Pumped to dive into all things Amazon today. But before we get there, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Sure. So um, the co-founder of uh, Cartograph, we're an Amazon-focused agency based in Austin, Texas. We work with 70 different brands, mostly CPG and a fair amount of skincare too. I started my career as a consultant at McKinsey, um, did that for about five years, worked for a lot of large consumer-facing businesses, ended up doing a lot of education work too, everything related to kind of like growth, marketing, and sales. I took a little detour into um, hedge fund investing and worked at a mortgage shop. Um, where we traded subprime mortgages and then um, on the side picked up some consulting clients in food and bev then my co-founder called me up he built a big amazon team at ge said hey let's build this together you seem to know something about consulting and uh cartograph was born that was about five years ago here we are today Hell yeah. Not going to go too deep into the McKinsey side. I want to learn everything about Cartograph and all of the fun things that you've done. What kind of brands do you work with? What were some highs and lows getting it going? I started my own agency too, and I could share those if you want, but uh, what was that all about? What was, what was that like? Yeah. So it's been a good ride. Like We've worked with probably about 150, between 150 and 200 brands actively on the Amazon platform. Really cut our teeth in kind of like brick and mortar styled better for you brands. So like our early clients were like Justin's Nut Butters, Fourth and Heart, Birch Benders, Lily's Chocolates, those kind of brands like really built for shelf and kind of version one of Cartograph was how do you take products built for a retail store to get onto Amazon? And so actually a few of those businesses have exited, which has been a fun journey. And then as we grew, we started to work with more brands that were like a little bit more digital native. So stuff, Magic Spoon and Kettle and Fire and even Lemon Perfect and Beverage World and got ourselves into skincare a little bit too. Work with like Starface and Necessaire. And yeah, really just love working with cool, innovative brands generally in the better for you space and finding ways to find, to help those brands grow on Amazon. Those are some epic brands you named off. Just want to start there. <laughs> Thank um, you. Funny story, a little bit of trivia, not trivia, but could be trivia. When I was at Quest Nutrition, we had a Quest like kitchen where we did a lot of R&D for recipes and content and stuff. And I remember when Lily's was smaller and they supplied our chocolate chips only when they is when they only had chocolate chips. Oh, and yeah. such a smart move by them. They were like, hey, we'll send these for free. Just backlink us on all of your recipes. And I never stopped thinking about how they weren't that big at that time. And or at least they, I didn't perceive them to be big. And yeah. they were able to build off of all of these recipes that were we were creating. And I thought that was such a smart move in hindsight. Yeah, they were, they're a really interesting story. They're actually a brand that took a long time to get going, even with us too. It was like long before we really started scaling numbers. Um, credit to, to VMG and their team though. 
put fuel on the fire, hit trend exactly right. We were, you know, stuff that you know about. We were drop shipping chocolate in the summertime, which was pretty hard, but people were dying to get the stuff. It wasn't, and, that, and that's often when D2C really works for food is when distribution isn't everywhere and people want it. And so people could get every flavor they wanted on Amazon 12 months of the year. And we sold, you know, we, I think we had million dollar runs with them on Amazon. Yeah, I'm not surprised. And you said something there that really excites me. You said when distribution isn't everywhere, you know, people can get whatever flavor they want online. And that's so important because I think that some founders, whether they start strictly D to C or whatever it may be, let's use that for an example right now. Strictly D2C brand may not see those same high months as their ACV in brick and mortar grows. If you're in 100% of all possible grocery stores in the natural channel or all conventional or you're in every single 7-Eleven or whatever it may be, I think that there's bound to be a point where people don't need to buy you know, your minimum order quantity on Amazon or your website and they could just pick up one unit or whatever they want in store. Do you find that to be pretty true? Totally, totally true. And it's actually, it's really interesting. So that's very true for certain brands like Amazon can be a stock gap. So I think that was the case for like Lily's. We actually worked with Cola Power way back in the day and people would buy it online because they didn't have a store nearby them. But what's what we're seeing now is a lot of these D2C brands are now making, they're actually play, playing the playbook. That was the playbook all along, which is build a really big D2C brand. So that's like Magic Spoon and Kettle and Fire, kind of like your pretty early textbook built a really big online business. If you talk to these big company founders, they all kind of had in their mind that there was a pretty hard ceiling on D2C, like in, in food at least. Mm -hmm. There was less than 100 million bucks. Still an enormous number, but they said, you know, for us to really be one of the true big dogs, you know, like a Fortune 500 type CPG, it, the game's in retail. And so what happens is they get to this terminal velocity online point, and then they raise a round. And it's funny what people say about like Magic Spoon's round on D2C and in those communities, because it actually was a round to help them pivot to retail, which is incredibly capital intensive and expensive. And so when you do that, you actually just totally change your stance online. And sometimes D2C or Amazon ends up be changing from a growth channel to a profit channel. We sometimes have to navigate that. And sometimes people even exit from us because Amazon stops being a focus. And uh, I like to think that we're, we just become victims of our own success. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I want to, want to go back to the Magic Spoon thing because they're also a client of my agencies and we've worked with them since before launch. And I can't, I, I'm just going to put it out there. I can't stand when people hate on Magic Spoon just for being successful. Like, <laughs> like some of the stuff I've been privileged to, to witness and observe over the years is just the utmost like diligence in being yeah. thought out in every single thing that you do. And it, it's so impressive. And when people are having, I think it's kind of like uh, when people want to talk about that one dude that was getting into it with Greta Dunberg, that one, I think they just want to talk about it because it's like a key moment in pop, pop culture and they want to get some likes or just kind of share their point of view. But I don't know why there would be a reason to hate on them so much. Yeah. Greg and Gabby are great guys and good friends. But when, when people ask me about working with them, the thing that's just consistent, kind of like what you said, is like everything they do is an A, right? Like it's grade A. Like every little project, they, they write it down, they document it, they approach it in like a thorough and rigorous way. They don't ever do anything kind of like shortcut halfway. And that's kind of our philosophy as an agency too. It's really about, especially this is like true on Amazon. It's about doing a hundred little things, right? It's not, I call it, it's perspiration, not inspiration. Like a hundred little things, right? Adds up to a really good Amazon business.
Hell yeah. 100%. I think that everything they do is an A execution is just, I've commented, I stopped recently. We crack, I crack jokes about it with their creative team where I used to just reply on Twitter, like scoreboard, just look <laughs> at the scoreboard. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's um go- going back to, you know, how it's the way that it should have always been. It reminds me a lot of early days with Quest. And before I got to Quest in 2013, mm-hmm. they had their big win with GNC. And the right. way that the, what, the way that they won was to creating create enough demand where GNC actually came knocking on their door and they rolled out nationally. And then kind of the rest was history. You know, they, yeah, they had some online things going. They were one of the first brands to really build when it was just Facebook. It was prior to Instagram launching, definitely prior to Facebook buying Instagram. And being there and watching that was such an awesome thing. And it's kind of shaped my career because they always were about building online communities and calling them to action, both online and in store. So it's one thing that makes me cringe is when people say Omnichannel. To me, it's kind of just, it's always been that way because that's all I've ever known, you know? Right. And like the, I like your use of scoreboard too, because a lot of it just comes down to numbers, which is like when you have a large, successful online business and you try to get into, you know, 5,000, 10,000 retail doors, the capital intensity to do that is so much less because of your marketing power and because of how it changes. And like, I think a lot of people don't realize the capital intensity of retail. It's often like just stupid stuff, like a slotting fee, $50 per SKU per store, 10,000 stores, like millions of dollars before you sell a product um, to get into all those doors. And so if you have a really strong online business, you can cut those out. You can cut those out entirely. Some of these big brands, like they say, hey, yeah, we'll, we'll take you and we'll waive these big online brands will waive all your slotting fees. And it's like, whoa, you just saved 5 million bucks. It's not a small deal, even in the numbers. Yeah, I was just talking to Amrit Richmond of NDCPG. She'll be the next episode next week. And she was sharing how that buyers right now in retail are looking at brands the way investors are. And what I what she meant by that is that they're they don't want to incubate or hold hands of brands and hope for the best the way that you would maybe in 2019. You can get on shelf and you can kind of you know willy-nilly it and hopefully be successful and have some product market fit. They don't, they're not interested in that anymore. They're not building out marketing plans for startups. They're choosing brands that they think have product market fit already before reaching shelf that have the right capital to make sure that they're successful. And I thought totally. that was a huge insight. Totally. What I think one of the things that, yeah, that's funny about a buyer's job is a big part of the risk you take on taking a brand is will they stick around and will they be able to give me inventory? This is actually one of the, one of the challenges we have as an agency, which is, can we get enough inventory to sell on Amazon? And so you really have to bet on winners in order to be able to just like keep the right brands in stock. Yeah. It's like, it's a category manager's job to, to grow the category and they've got to choose the right brands and there's a lot of risk involved. But one, one thing I don't know if people know, like we're rolling out in a couple different places. I'll announce it pretty shortly. And it's always interesting to know that anytime you're authorized to be on the shelf of a retailer, that means somebody was discontinued and it's just the name of the game. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit sad. I always, one of my mantras with my founder friends is it's squid game, not gladiator. Yeah. <laughs> where it's like everyone's just fighting to survive and it's us against the man. But but I guess that's one case where it's a little bit more like Gladiator. Yeah, there's instances where it's David and Goliath too when you know the big food companies have endless capital to make sure that they have better placements in the strike zone, off shelves, all of that stuff. It's sometimes unfair, but you got to play that game. Got it. I mean, that's why we're in it to, yep. to get some of these David and Goliath battles won. 
Hell yeah. Let's transition more of um, what you do, your book of business. I want to start with Amazon versus D2C, and I'll set it up this way. Some brands view Amazon and their online website, let's call it Shopify, as direct consumer. Do you split those two out or do you view them as one and the same? It's, it's an interesting question. It's a bit of like how you define the term. I've always thought of it pretty differently. Like the, uh, the triple whale conference is in town here this, uh, this week in Austin. And I was there yesterday and, um, I don't know that community very well, but it's awesome. There's so much energy and they really love getting together. And the way I described it is like, I'm like their neighbor, but there's a freeway that goes between our two houses. So we just don't <laughs> see each other that much. And so like some major differences, totally different inventory is pretty substantial. And then also the customer contact stuff. But yeah, actually for most intents and purposes, I consider it separate. And like this gets into kind of the questions on cannibalization is like, is Amazon good for D2C brands and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. With one brand we work with, they just view it as the D2C channel and you know that it is what it is. But at the end of the day, both of them have different economics. If you're FBA, if you're FBA, FBM or fulfilled by merchant, it's just 15% off the top and you're fulfilling, right? And FBA, you're shipping pallets over and then they're fulfilling. Is that pretty right. accurate? Yep. Yep. For me, like Amazon has its own mini PL and it has its own contribution margin. Shopify has its own and has all of the fees and services that are involved in that. I think that they're different, even though you might be shipping, if you're FBM, you're shipping direct to consumer. I view them as two different right. channels that ultimately add up to yep, yeah. offline revenue. That's how we view it too. Like we we generate a contribution margin PL every month for all of our clients. And um, it's actually sometimes interesting. Some brands will come to us and we'll say, wow, this is actually better than our Shopify in some ways. I mean, it's not exactly apples to apples because you have to consider what is doing brand awareness versus what is just doing acquisition. But totally think that the P&Ls should be separate. The other thing though, is the customer pools are pretty different. This is one that surprises people. If you imagine people who shop online, the Venn diagram of people who shop on D2C websites and Amazon does not have that much overlap. And the demographics actually play out on this. Amazon skews millennial Gen X, older, head of household. The way I describe it is people who were told to never put their credit card on the internet as kids, then were able to trust Amazon. And that's the one place they go versus DTC tends to be a bit younger, Gen Z, more tech savvy. We even measure this when we launch new DTC brands and we compare customers either with like address lists or different ways to do it. The crossover is surprisingly small, usually about 3%. So it's almost like a totally different set of people that you're unlocking when you launch on Amazon. It's 3% crossover. That's a real number. That's a real number we've measured on probably about a half dozen brands. Damn. Now, let me, let me say, like, if you're going to make substantially different offers on the two channels, you'll probably have more flow, but that's usually like keeping some degree of uniformity. And that's usually where we'll start price uniformity, maybe with a slight price premium on Amazon to account for like a, a shipping threshold or something on your DTC. Yeah. Makes sense. Do you find that people have different offerings, like similar to channel strategy and brick and mortar, you're not rolling out a four pack into Costco. If you have one in, in specialty grocery, you know, like, do you find that people should have different packouts for Amazon to help mitigate that? Or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So definitely different packs versus retail, because you'll have a channel conflict and price arbitrage situations and price matching and stuff like that. D2C, not all that much, honestly. Like many of the very successful D2C brands mirror their offers because otherwise you create kind of weird incentives for things to flow back and forth. 
Now, th there's definitely a logic that, okay, so you'd, you, you have a strong, stable D2C offering that's like, you know, your bread and butter. You launch on Amazon, you mirror that offering, you stabilize, okay, you have these two businesses, you know where they're at. And then on Amazon, you look at the category and say, okay, I could actually capture more category share on Amazon if I change my offering. Like this is one of the goals on Amazon. You want to break correlation with your D2C growth. But getting to that point is actually not a place that many brands have gotten to. It's just like a, it's just like a degree of sophistication that, that often, um, yeah, I don't know. I just don't know that many brands have, who have like even gotten there. Interesting. And when, earlier when you said that there's a terminal velocity for brands and how much they can scale online, that hundred million number, was that Amazon and .com combined or Amazon alone? Um, I'd say Amazon and .com combined. This number shocks people. When you take out like Fortune 100 type CPG companies, there are definitely less than 10 or 20 brands on Amazon that do in food and bev that do more than 10 million a year. Damn. Yeah. It doesn't make my business look so good, but yeah, no, there's just like a, there's just a limit to how big the channels can be. And then like, I think like some of the metrics that we say is Amazon should be somewhere between roughly like 10 and 35% of your D2C for really healthy D2C business. So multiply 10 to 20 times 10 to times three to 10 and you've got your ceiling for D2C, which is like most food and bed brands can't do better than 30 to 75. Like there's very few who've gotten really interesting. Very cool numbers. Well, shit, good to know. Amazon's pushing something pretty heavily right now. Buy with Prime. What is it and what do you think about it? Yeah, buy with Prime is really at high level is Amazon seeking to compete with Shopify. So what they're doing, it's in a way a competitor of Shopify pay because it lets it saves your Amazon login, lets you check out, it actually gives the merchant the little prime check mark on your D2C site. And then it also uses Amazon's fulfillment network. So you use Amazon's FBA. So it's using Amazon as a 3PL and then Amazon as like the pay merchant and lets them put it on your website. And so Amazon put a ton of work into this. It, I think it makes at a very high level makes perfect strategic sense, right? Like they need to try to capture more of just online commerce and trying to get people to get into the Amazon ecosystem outside of Amazon was a healthy way. So far, we haven't been super impressed with it. I think one of one of the like total major problems with it that they say is on the roadmap is you can't construct carts on it. So you can only check out one item at a time. So if you're selling a mattress or you're selling a like, I don't know, air filter of some sort or like an appliance where it's just one item, sure it could work for you. But if, you know, most of the businesses that you and I work with, car construction is the name of the game, especially on D2C. So that's one problem with it. The other is Amazon came to market in the last month or so with these case studies that said it improved conversion by 25% on their D2C clients' websites. And I would bet someone a very nice dinner that is not true, or they're doing funny math because we've had a, a number of clients try it and uptake just isn't that big. And it, it kind of affirms what I talked to before about this, like the myth of consumers are open to either platform. They're like easily moved between the two platforms. And I, I actually think it's a myth. I think if you're on a D2C website and you've gotten to the checkout page, you're not abandoning it because it doesn't have an Amazon checkout, 
Like you're already in the arena, you're ready to play. And so it's just like one of these funny beliefs that people have about, about consumers, but consumers shop where they want to shop. I think that's, that's ultimately the, uh, what they're getting wrong with it. So not super hot on buy with prime. It'll eventually probably become something important because Amazon's logistics network is the best in human history, but not exciting for us quite yet. Understood. I don't want to dive deeper into that one because we got our first live question of the podcast and it's, okay. it's from none other than Amrit Richmond. She tweeted, ask him what percent of clients change their packaging to be efficient on Amazon. Hi, Chris, starry eyed emoji. <laughs> Hi, Amrit. Yeah, it's a very good question. So there's, there's changing your package and then there's changing your package, uh, packaging. A good portion of brands do some kind of custom kitting in order to construct their, what they sell. Cause like, you know, you know, Boston beverage, you can't sell one can. Got to sell a bunch. And the same is true with snacks. The same is true with pantry stuff, sauces and stuff like that. It's pretty hard to just sell eaches. So from that standpoint, a good portion, like, like at least half construct a custom kit. And even if you are one of these DTC companies that's mirroring your offer that like has a nice high AOV, you might actually package it differently or label it differently to be a little bit more efficient on the fulfillment side. So that's at least half. Now, in addition to that, people who make custom sizes on Amazon is not insignificant. You might do this for, usually the reason that people do this is because they have a problem with either price matching or arbitrage. Happens with Costco a lot where people can buy things on Costco, resell them, compete with you because Costco gets things at such low cost. And um, fun fact, you can actually, if you buy in bulk at Costco, you can negotiate with the store manager and get up to 9% off. Wow. So yeah, I know, right? It's like terrifying for people who work on Amazon, but interesting if you like really love your Costco product. So people will make a unique size on Amazon. So not to be price matched, on other channels and also to avoid an arbitrage opportunity between for resellers. And so I'd say those, and with those two, if you make a custom size and what and the reason, the way you think about a custom size is you look at like the steps in Amazon fulfillment costs and you find, okay, what's the most product I can put into the package for the least cost of shipping and like find that corner on the curve. Folks, folks who do that, yeah, probably is like a, at least another 10% of brands that do it. And like, if you're in a super competitive category, say like, you know, things like matcha or something like that, where it's like really competitive, sometimes that can be the difference between winning and losing. I always think about this. Amazon, when D2C companies come to Amazon, it's often the first time they're really merchandised immediately next to a competitor. And like, you really get to know who you convert against and you really get to know where, like, who, who is your true competitor? Um, so sometimes you'll do those things just to start winning those battles. Very interesting. I, I want to zoom in and I have, I have a specific question, but before we do, can you go into what exactly arbitrage is for those listening who may not know? Sure. Arbitrage as a concept is where you can basically resell something for a profit. And so the most common arbitrage in e-commerce is Actually, probably when uh, Tim Ferriss wrote the four hour work week and told you all to drop ship stuff from, from like, you know, source stuff in Asia and drop ship it. <laughs> that was basically arbitrage, right? Everyone could have bought products in China to like their back scratcher or whatever. But arbitrage in our world in CPG is you find products at a discount somewhere. Costco is one example. Buying directly from a supplier or a distributor like UNFI or Kahi is another example. Sometimes people will find product at discount retailers, like if you have an end of season or you're trying to liquidate product. 
And then what those people do is they turn around and they list it on Amazon and they sell it and they might compete with your offer. They might undercut you a little bit. And um, the funny thing too, is like you can do the work and build the P&L to find exactly like what would be the lowest that they'd go before they lost money. But most of these arbitrage operators, they are in it for credit card points, not for profit dollars. Mm. So it's really hard fighting with somebody when they care about something else in the battle and what you do. I've got a fun story about that and a watch out. And you kind of touched on the watch out. It's if anywhere you can, if you can negotiate in your contract with a distributor to not be resold to people who are selling on Amazon, that's always a good thing to do. We had this issue back at Quest mm -hmm. and it was a full on process. Thankfully, I wasn't a part of it back then, but I think they got that done over time. People were selling bars for like buck 50 a bar online and right. it was kind of a nightmare. The bars were rock solid because they were aged and they mm -hmm. weren't perfect. So it was bad on the brand. It was bad on the perception. It was a nightmare. But another time that happened was with Outer Isle, we had somebody buying from a distributor and you know, it was a race to the bottom. And what we had to do, and I don't know if this is the answer, but this is what we did. And we're, we're sticking to it unless you say otherwise we, we turned those ASINs off. So I think that what they did was use the ASINs that existed. They were just another seller of that ASIN and kicking our butt on the price. So what we ended up doing was doing bundles on Amazon. So you, it's five pack yeah. bundles and we haven't heard from them since it's been a couple of years. The con to that was like, the pro is obviously they, they washed away. The con right. was that it was such a high minimum order quantity now, or, you know, they could order, right. I think minimum order quantity was four. Now it's five or six and our conversion rates are down. Sales are down because people don't want to buy that many. And our sweet spot was four. Is that something you see out in the market when people are trying to combat those guys? Yeah, it's it's super common. Like specialty chip manufacturers deal with it a lot. Like it doesn't, the economics don't work for them to sell one, but these resellers will sell one bag at, at break even. And so there's not a ton that you can do. Yeah, turning, if you can turn off the ASINs, Amazon will often turn them back on though. Yeah, your best bet is construct an offer that has a better value. Cause usually like what you guys probably did, the multi-pack probably was a little bit better price per unit yeah. than just um, yeah. just the one, but it, it's a tough battle. And like you said, if you cutting it off at the source is really the best, your best bet. Yeah. The worst part of it, we lost thousands of reviews and I bet people are like, oh. and their jaw is going to drop. And it was one of those things where it was, I mean, we had to choose one or the other, get smoked with the arbitrage or try to find a solution, get sales, different offer and lose a few reviews. We were able to recoup some, but we definitely lost a boatload of reviews. And that's tough because reviews are your moat ultimately. Yep. Reviews yeah, are what... We had thousands, man, thousands. Anywho, tough times, but we're getting past uh -huh. it. <laughs> sure. um, so let's transition over to FBA versus FBM. What's the difference and when is the right time to go from one to the other? Sure. So for, first to define the two. So FBA is Amazon's fulfillment by Amazon network. There's like over 50 warehouses across the U.S., you ship into one, they redistribute it for you. It's technically on consignment and you get paid 14 days after the product ships to your end consumers. You pay a flat rate per item shipped. And so it is from a like speed basis, it is the cheapest way to get your product fastest to consumers. FBM stands for fulfillment by merchant. So that is if really you're using Amazon as like a referrer or like an affiliate and you're just shipping it from your own warehouse. And so it's just like, a, it's like a drop ship. And so Amazon just takes a, usually a 15% cut depending on category and you just ship the product and you pay the shipping. So for most brands, FBA is worth it. For most brands, FBA is actually cheaper than what you'll be able to do that in FBM, especially if you have lower price dollar or lower dollar price items. And then 
The thing too is Amazon shoppers have such an affinity for that prime check mark and being able to get it in one or two days that we find when we will usually have an FBM offer as a backup when we have fast moving items. And um, when it flips, you lose at least half your velocity on, on fast moving goods. Now, all that said, there are some cases where brands have been able, like uh, some that you work with, Fasa, have been able to build really good businesses with FBM. Chalk Zero actually was one back in the day when like they were the kings of keto chocolate. Hmm. This was probably like 18, 19. They flipped it all to FBM and there was just like enough demand and they were able to... I think what happened is they were already top of the ranking. And so they were able to defend it and hold it. But like if you're trying to, to climb the rankings, it's super hard to do so without. Now... The other cases you might do FBM though is in some cases on beverage, you might be able to like get a lower cost net. Or if you have a really large cube product or something and you're able to get your shipping rates based on weight, not cube, it, the economics could be a little bit better than FBM. But generally speaking, like of, of our clients, like 99% we recommend FBA. Are there any types of brands that just don't make sense for FBA? Like I know that refrigerated and frozen can't do FBA, right? For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great point. If you're temp controlled, FBA just doesn't work because you have to be in those warehouses ambient and then in non-temp controlled trucks. So if you're a refrigerated or frozen product, you have to drop ship. There is a way to get prime shipping. It's really hard and reasonably expensive. If you have a vendor central account or you have a legacy seller central account, you can do their prime programs. Yeah, that's... Very, very interesting. Yeah, we're, we've got one brand that's FBM. It was able to climb the ranks to number one in bread and number one in pizza crust at some point. Amazing. I think it was like one, three, and five. I think we had something like that. Um, but those darn arbitrage people. That's why, <laughs> that's why people can't have nice things. I, I want to go into another thing that Amazon's pushing. And if you're listening to this and you go to somebody's link in bio or whatever they're using and you see an Amazon list, it's usually an Amazon affiliate. What is Amazon doing with those folks? And is it working? It's something that startup brands should be looking at. Yeah, it's an area I'm super interested in and excited about. And I think it's really interesting. So Amazon's never been great at the affiliate thing or the influencer thing, but they've rolled out some better tools and some better programs that not only give you sales attribution of traffic, which changes your ability to like to compensate traffic, but they've actually just like really increased the room. So historically, influencers have gotten up to four or five percent for sales referrals that they sent through their own links. Amazon actually cut this down to like one to three percent. But like there's still a lot of TikTok influencers out there who have like their Amazon store that they link to and they actually make a fair amount of money doing so. Now, the program that Amazon has called the brand referral bonus, which is if you're a brand and someone goes through your link, you get 10% back which is a really big deal. And so with some of our clients that are influencer-led brands or founders with really big audiences or what have you, we started telling them this. And because a lot of these influencer-led brands, one of their like actual hacks is they have a network of people with big audiences who all support each other. And so what I tell them is, hey, like, why don't you guys use the brand link, split the proceeds, everyone makes more. Now, there's very few people who are using this at scale, I think for a few reasons. One is the data, people don't trust the data. And, and I think for good reason, the reporting hasn't been tremendous on it. 
And then the arrangement requires a fair amount of trust. They haven't built it to be creator friendly. Like the brand just gets 10% back. And so they, they have to use your link. It's re, it's just a URL. It's a little bit clunky. And then you have to trust them that you all agree on the, on the numbers and then you pay them. It's not as efficient as just like a referral link that drops in your bank account. The other reason that I think people aren't using this, and I learned this from um, Aaron Paul Street, is that the big affiliates to the really big affiliates, 10% isn't enough. They make way more than that. That was news to me, but I think if there are influencers who send their traffic to Amazon stores at one to three percent, there is a market for ten percent, but just no one's doing it yet. I think it's going to be. Um, I'm, I'm hoping we crack it. I think it'll be something people figure out. Yeah, affiliates always been something interesting to me. We've never dabbled with it on Amazon. Always wanted to try making a big push with Outer Isle, and it's I can't quite crack that nut. But affiliate for. Shopify is much easier. I feel like there's so many solutions that are good out there. We've used Refersion historically. We've used yeah. one cool one that's out there is Social Snowball. I haven't used that one yet. I'm, I'm testing Group Shop right now that has like post-purchase signups where you can create your own like micro site for the brand and any sales that go through it. You get your affiliate commissions. Oh, nice. Pretty sick. Group shop's pretty sick. There's some other ones coming out. I think this someone's chatting with somebody from like Superfiliate or something like that pretty soon. When is Amazon going to invest in something like that where there's a lot more transparency and clarity so that brands and and affiliates can build trust with one another? Yeah, I think this would have been a way better thing to do for buy with than buy with Prime for them to figure out. Like if they really wanted, right? Because buy with Prime is their way to get like data or get ad traffic, and eventually, like I think it's an ads play actually in some ways which is they're trying to, to sell more Amazon ads outside of Amazon. But yeah, it's not a focus of Amazon, unfortunately. I don't think they're, they're going to do cool group shopping stuff or cool refer a friend type stuff, unfortunately. Such a bummer. It could be so cool for creators to really monetize and get, it's not going to be like the only way they monetize. Of course, it's their, you know, their agency or whatever their fees are. Um, but I wish there was a better way to do it or an easier way to do it. But sometimes that's just the way the cookie crumbles. Yeah, we'll keep at it. If we crack this 10% thing, I mean, there's, it's, it's just like a fair amount of money. We'll let you know. You'll be the first to know, doesn't it? Hell yeah. I want that text message. Let's go in, into Amazon private label. That was a big topic of discussion last year. It's been a big topic mm. of discussion. There's been reports that Amazon's pumping its private label products over people who are spending significant amounts of dollars on advertising. What are you seeing out there in the field? Yeah, so there's a few dimensions to Amazon private label, and it's been a really big political topic, like a political grandstanding topic. So I want to break down some of the complaints. So one of the biggest complaint in the like legal arenas, I think, is around data, that they use data from uh, their merchants to then create products and compete with them. So that's bucket number one. I, I think that bucket's a little bit overblown. Private label has been something that retailers have done everywhere since supermarkets originated about 100 years ago. And there's good third-party tools that can tell you almost all the data that Amazon would have about trends and stuff like that. So that's bucket one. Um, and an interesting thing, too, about Amazon private labels, they often will approach best-selling brands to launch it for them. And they'll say, hey, will you launch this? So like we got approached by, one of our clients got approached for like a pantry staple, like a spread type product. And like for a lot of these brands, they actually end up doing it. In a retail format, people do that. Cause it's like, you get more utilization of your CapEx from a production standpoint, you own more of the shelf. It may not be like as profitable for you, but better than your competition, et cetera, et cetera. Now where it gets sketchy is ads and merchandising. I think this is actually a place where Amazon crosses the line, whether they're, they're brands between like Salimo, Amazon Basics and so forth that you've all probably seen online. They will put a privileged 
spot on top of the page in search results and say like results from our products and stuff like that. And like, it's a, da- it's a dangerous game. I mean, you, you may have seen the DOJ case against Google for anti-competitive practices related to their ad network and like having non-transparent pricing in order to guarantee their margin. I think this gets into that realm and like even gets into like FTC um, pricing violations of like unfair pricing of advertising products in a marketplace. But that, that was one of my predictions at the start of this year that antitrust was coming for digital commerce. Yeah, it's definitely percolating out there. There's some sometimes where Amazon's selling their private label at a loss just to get that going, isn't that? Is that true or am I tripping? That is true, but it's not just private label. Amazon views like having full exhaustive category coverage as a strategic imperative. And so they'll take losses on their best sellers across a lot of categories. And sometimes those that will actually be at the benefit to brands. Damn. We'll see how it unfolds. I just know it's one thing that I see all the time on LinkedIn, whether it's clothing and people are pissed about Amazon basics, hijacking them, (laughs) whatever it may be. We'll see how it goes. It's a, it's a super tricky thing. Cause like, even this is actually where the calls for breaking up an organization somewhat makes sense. Because if you really want it to be fair, you would have Amazon basics bid for the same ads that everyone else does. That doesn't really make sense if you're in the same organization and the same P&L. And so like, that's what like some of these break up the big tech businesses arguments come down to is like, okay, like the incentives are off. They can't participate in the marketplace, even though these business units are like in practice a zillion miles away from each other at Amazon. We'll have to see, keeping a close eye on what uh, Lena Khan's office is doing in the FTC. Oh yeah. I got one last thing for you. The remarketing on Amazon, it's definitely possible. I've seen drip campaigns that brands are running, but compared to .com, I feel as I'm a big proponent of having emails, phone numbers, where people live or the zip codes, things like that for that re- those retail initiatives. On Amazon, I've never been able to have that. What's your take on it? What are the pros and cons? Yeah, so you're totally right. You can get zip codes and you can understand repeat purchase behavior. We actually just launched some repeat purchase tools that people can um, just, you don't have to work with us. You can just contact us and we'll boot up your, your dashboards. But you can get repeat purchase behavior, which I think is really important for, um, yeah, for remarketing advertising. You can at least see like in aggregate consumption times. So like I should wait two weeks before I really serve up a, a remarketing ad. So you can do remarketing a little bit, but you're totally right. It's not as good. I think what it comes down to is it comes down to if you believe that the audiences are the same ones or they're separate and how much overlap do they have. And like, if you believe that they're truly separate and like, that's kind of what we believe, we have decent data for it then, it, then it's sort of like, it doesn't matter all that much. One of the one interesting things about buy with Prime is now we're getting really deep in the Amazon advertising rabbit hole, but bear with me, is Amazon for the first time is letting you take Amazon audiences and advertise them to your D2C. So in theory, you can remarket to your D2C and pull those people over. So like the world is changing. The possibility is there. It's still like a, a tiny path in a dark forest at the moment, but eventually I think like under under Jassy's reign at Amazon, data has gotten a lot more transparent. So we will see. 
Yeah, I'm just going to share my POV on it. I like the point you made about if the center of that Venn diagram is only 3% and the shoppers are different, then what does it really matter? And that's a hell of a point. I would say that it's definitely makes me focus more on .com because you mentioned there's a terminal velocity for what you can do across Amazon and your website. And if scale is truly in brick and mortar, for me, I like building armies or what I call house file. If you have your touch points on email, SMS, your app, your subscription, subscribers, your affiliates, your ambassadors, your Facebook group, or your Discord, or all of these different touch points where you're nurturing a community. And I cringe saying that myself, but they're the very truth. When I can send an email or a text or a push notification or a Facebook message out to folks saying, hey, we're now available in XYZ retailer, it's 10 miles away from you. Or when we can respond to paid social and someone says, where can I buy this? And we ask, where's your zip code? And we tell them literally the cross streets of their local Whole Foods or Sprouts or whatever it may be. That's so valuable to me in the grand scheme of things because it's supporting retail. And at the end of the day, that's a very, very important channel. For sure. I have no disagreement to anything that you said, but one stat that's a little bit interesting is what we'll tell D2C brands thinking of launching on Amazon is that you get about a 0.25 ROAS for your paid digital because people see your ads, they see those text messages or they see those emails, they open up the Amazon app and type in your brand name. And so that's the one final thing is you're right. And actually like to most brands, I would say if you, if DTC is a viable channel for you, it needs to be working better than Amazon for some brands, it's not, but yeah, usually I think the right answer is both. Yeah. I like it. We're one last thing. We have a brand. We turned off all ads on Amazon. We just have the products up there for sale. And we've seen a positive correlation with continuing to run paid social, continuing to focus on our retention tactics. And yeah. we have surveys within the journey that ask, why didn't you buy online? And they said, well, I bought on Amazon or I bought at Wegmans or I bought at X, Y, and Z. But we've seen that running paid social, people are clicking out of that app and going to Amazon and buying. And I do think that both are important. I just wanted to state that. I don't think one's better than the other. Yeah. I think they're both important, finding a way to win on both and ultimately parlaying that to win in retail. Yeah. Ultimately, like digital marketing is a lot like investing. You're just looking for the cheapest acquisitions. You're just looking for the cheapest ways to drive sale. And like, if you, you subscribe to like modern portfolio theory or a very slimmed down version of it, it's like, where can you get your most efficient acquisitions and shift your investment to that? And like, sometimes the right approach to like your most efficient marginal dollar is to list on Amazon and not advertise mm. like your brand, but because it actually still drives the most total net acquisitions. I love it. Chris, it was a hell of a time chatting with you. I'm going to link to Cartograph, your LinkedIn, everything I could find in the show notes. Um, but just want to say thank you for joining us. So insightful. And I think everyone's going to love this episode. Awesome. Super fun, Vasa. All right. Take care.